Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight, our Mid-Autumn Festival special. I'm Tian Wei. This year, Mid-Autumn Festival, one of the most important traditional Chinese holidays, falls on September the 29th. The festival is considered a time of reunions, when the full bright moon on the night inspires families to be together. As we gaze on the same moon as our ancestors did from thousands of years ago, we feel the depth and strength of ancient Chinese culture within. The moon puts on an elegant show, different every time in shape, color, and nuance. Throughout history, the Chinese have nurtured a special love for the moon. When the night sky is about to be lit with the soft hue of the full moon, it is a welcome sign of the Mid-Autumn Festival. The glow of lanterns and savory and sweet mooncakes and the moonlit night will mark celebrations for the second biggest Chinese holiday of the year after the Spring Festival. In that sense, quite similar to the importance of Thanksgiving in the West. The Mid-Autumn Festival is celebrated on the night when the moon is at its fullest and brightest. of China's traditional culture, many argue from ancient times to present day, is rooted in Confucianism. It inspires many Chinese to seek mutual learning. It speaks of the relationship between mankind and nature and more. Against a more complicated global backdrop today, China looks deep into its traditional culture for answers to some of the most challenging questions today. Professor Roger Ames, the Humanities Chair at Peking University, who's also a professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of Hawaii, has devoted decades studying Confucianism. I had a quite enlightening conversation with him on the influence of Confucianism today and also on the relationship between history, philosophy, and mindset in China. Uh, We've come here many times, many times. What is the rediscovery process like for you? Um, we've really watched it grow. I mean, um, I first came to Chufu in 1985. Uh, Confucianism was something that um, was, uh, was um, not uh, celebrated at that point. But you've seen sort of the, 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 the country change its mind and Confucianism really become part of an understanding that that China's future has to be grounded in its past. It seems that China is also rediscovering itself. Yes, yeah, very much so. How earnest is it? I think it's really earnest. I think that um, China is learning to be uh, a great country again. I mean, think of Da Tang, you know, the great Tang Dynasty, when China was really the center of the world. Europeans writing on China during that time, Leibniz, um, two centers of, of civilization, China and Europe, and centers that are really very different, you know, something different to offer. But um, Europe was very much enamored of China during that time. Well, you are doing research about Confucius and Confucianism right now in China. You are also at the same time filling the pose of the changes of China today. Yeah, it, 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 that, that any kind of a, a purist, conservative um, Chinese culture 
is really anathema to the, 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 the flourishing of Chinese culture. That Chinese culture can only flourish when it's progressive, when it's evolutionary, mm. when new ideas are coming in. The, the whole idea of Hurbutong is, is not synchronic, it's diachronic. It's all about process. It's all about life, sheng sheng lun. You know, I mean, the, the idea that um, the, 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 the first philosophy of the Chinese tradition that you find in the Book of Changes is this idea of life. Very interesting that we can go back into the documents to find the roots of a lot of the, the thoughts that are still, you know, the most important components of what we are today. Right, right. And I think that that's where Chinese culture is remarkable, and that is that these ancient texts are very much a part of, of contemporary uh, life, you know, that references are made to them. The, the, the phenomenon of Cheng Yu, you know, these um, four character sayings that are so important in the Chinese language, other languages don't have that. And those, those um, sayings really are rooted in the culture. They're not, they're not um, a stitch in time saves nine, you know, some kind of silly uh, expression. They really, they're all about culture. They're about the canonical texts. They're about poetry and so on. China and U.S. think very differently. Uh, China with three to 5,000 years history uh, being recorded in, uh, in, uh, in, in words, uh, in fact, always refer to history in order to learn and also to reflect upon the road ahead. The U.S., on the other hand, with its short history, but very impressive history, uh, look at how to address issues head-on, right. rather than long-term and strategic, right. even though you boast also some of the best strategists in the world. So when we describe the two cultures like that, as generally as this, how much do you think there is the space of learning that we could have toward one another? Yeah, I think that there's an asymmetry. Like, I think the, the greatness of America is, can be captured in one word, and that's immigration. That um, what, has, what has overcome the poverty in, in American culture, because it's so new, um, has been uh, different cultures bringing their cultures to America, and then those cultures um, making a difference for each other. Not, not simply differing from each other, but differing for each other. And, um, and so that, that's America's greatness. Recent America has become insular, you know, that um, liberalism, uh, the original idea of liberalism, is a kind of inclusiveness, is everybody gets taken care of in the society, that we pay attention to minorities and, and so on. Um, and so the, the emergence within the American culture of a kind of self-conscious, exclusive idea of what it means to be American has really uh, become an obstacle for what has been great about America. Um, in China, what you're saying, I think, is absolutely right, and that is that China, everything that we do as human beings is through analogy. We're always analogizing out of our 
experience. If I want to try to understand China, what I have to do is I have to go into my own experience and try to find something that resonates with China. And so China has this great resource for analogizing that we call the Chinese tradition. In, on the one hand, what it does is it makes innovation more difficult because the analogies are so abundant. In American culture, the analogies are much less, and so it hasn't been um, uh, sort of slowed down you know, in its innovation in the same degree. So another great part of, of America, and I think most people would say that, and, and that is that it, it has been innovative. Where do you see China is looking for inspirations? I think that um, what China is really coming to understand clearly is that its future is rooted very heavily in its traditional culture. And it, it's, it's become sort of um, re really, um, uh, I think, an important commitment. We live in kind of a an asymmetrical point, point in time. Whatever we have to say about China, the economic uh, development of China is unprecedented in human history. We've never seen anything. If this happened in Belgium, you know, it would be in incredible. But to happen in a country like China, a 58-kilometer bridge from Hong Kong to Macau to Zhuhai, I mean, what has happened in China is, is, is just absolutely remarkable. Where did that come from? that came from uh, stability in the world, you know, stability that in, in many ways was, was provided by uh, America and Europe and, you know, after the Second World War. Um, everything is interdependent. Um, so in this particular moment, there's this asymmetry. Uh, prior to pandemic, we had 350,000 Chinese students in America, maybe 15,000 American students in China. You had this, um, this economic and political rise of China that was only seen by the outside world, a world that is dominated by a kind of liberalism. It was only seen maybe around 2005. 2005 was the year that my colleagues stopped coming to visit me on bicycles and came to visit me in cars. You know, that was the, the that's my marker, you know. <laughs> Your personal diary. My personal diary, yeah. And so, um, so it's not surprising, you know, that um, the rise of China, seen from the perspective of a world dominated by liberalism, has startled the world. And being startled, you know, you have this kind of, of anti-China uh, media, politics, and so on. But, but the, the, the growth of China is not going to stop. Uh, China's not going away. Uh, the growth of China is, 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 not, is, is going to continue. And, um, and we're going to have to learn to have a different relationship with China. What China is doing is it's sort of focusing its uh, um, growth in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, you know, this Idai Lu, this uh, Belt, Belt and Road Initiative, yeah. Um, and it's kind of just letting the Western powers getting a better relationship with Europe, too. So, What is the real essence of confidence? What constitutes confidence? What cultivates 
confidence in a real sense. Uh, that confidence uh, combined with respect for the others and curiosity uh, for the others and mutual learning. How, how is that you know, chemistry likely to play it out uh, during this process? You know, there are so many different concepts at that. Yeah, no. I, from in, in the Western philosophical tradition, I come out of pragmatism. And pragmatism is simply to ask the question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? And so I think that philosophers certainly have the responsibility to understand the histories of our cultural traditions. But I think once we uh, do that, then the most important question we have to have, we have to ask that has to do with confidence is, can I endorse this idea? Does this idea, will this idea make a difference in the modern world? To one example that I would give is that the concept of the discrete individual, whether it's at an individual level, a corporate level, or in terms of nation states, that this has become you know, a zero-sum way of thinking in a world where everything is interdependent and where if we don't work together, we won't survive. And so how do we get past that? In the Confucian tradition, a person is not a discrete individual. A person is constituted by their relationships and family and community and so on. This way of thinking about what it means to be a person what it means to be a corporation, what it means to be a nation state, is a better model than the one that, we, uh, that prevails today. And so, can I endorse this idea? I do endorse this idea. Do I have confidence in this idea? I do have confidence in this idea. On the other hand, how much is it still there, the space for mutual learning? You know, it's an aspiration, I would say, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. but. Given the realities today, uh, how much is there for maneuvering? How much is there a space for real mutual learning? Well, I, I think that that's the challenge of China. You know, I think China has got, you know, this, this, this economic miracle has meant that China has a surplus of infrastructure. It has this, it, it can change the world in a way that um, it has changed China itself. And so with this kind of taking China's infrastructure to the world, you have a political component, you have an economic component, but the challenge is cultural and whether or not there can be cultural understanding with the different uh, countries, that, the different traditions that, that China is encountering. I think this is really the, the that cultural element, I think, is really the, the, the essence of whether, of whether or not this can really be successful. Mm. Now, it has a lot to do with our own understanding of our own cultures. Yes. How sophisticated is that so far? What, what is your assessment? Well, I, I think that the, the language, the rhetoric, you know, um, is, is very positive. You know, these, these ideas about, um, you know, uh, win-win as opposed to winners and losers, the idea about a shared future, you know, uh, uh, the idea about an optimizing symbiosis. I, I think on the one hand, we can treat this as kind of sloganism, but, but when we look at the, the tradition, I mean, if you think of something as simple, as Chinese food, 
You know, you look at a European menu and it's one page. You look at a Chinese uh, a menu and it's a book. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to get as much as you can, texture, taste, color, um, smell, sound, you know, out of the food um, in order to, to make the most of it. You go next door to a Guangdong restaurant and they've got another book. And so, so the idea of getting the most, why is family the governing metaphor in the Chinese tradition? Because family is that human institution that looks to get the most out of uh, the human experience. And so that idea of optimizing symbiosis, of getting the most out of your ingredients, is, is really grounded in the tradition. So some say history repeats. That's the logic of history. Mm -hmm. Others say, well, you can always make a difference. And this time, it might be different. Mm -hmm. So as a scholar of Chinese culture, how do you read what people are going through right now in terms of looking at this stage of their life and their country and their culture? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you see that's likely to play a role in their choices, in the choices that they make? Mm -hmm. Like in the, um, in the Book of Changes, it talks about bian tong, about change and persistence. When uh, cultures are, are uh, healthy, there's a great deal of change. And that, that comes out like the, the most fecund uh, area is in between cultures. This is where the growth is going on. And so to the extent that we can take advantage of that um, uh, possibility, mm -hmm. the possibility of growing. And so these kinds of events, you know, done well, you know, um, bringing world cultures together to have a conversation, uh, mutually edifying, mutually stimulating, producing a new hybridic way of thinking about a world culture. I think this is, is really what we have to be doing today. Mm -hmm. So let the dialogue continue. Let the dialogue real continue. Yeah. The real dialogue. Thank you so much, Professor. It's always a pleasure. It's, it's been delightful for me. Welcome back. This is World Inside with me, Tian Wei. As you know, mooncake is a must-eat food during the Mid Autumn Festival. It's usually round in shape and is seen as a symbol of family reunions. Across China, there are a variety of mooncakes with very different stuffing and tastes, but they all symbolize the same desire to reunite with families as always they do in holidays. On the significance of this special pastry, let me introduce now a friend of mine, Matthew Hu, founder of the Courtyard Institute. Let's hear his explanation. Today we are going to share stories yes. about the festival because you're the one I go to whenever I have questions about the Chinese traditional culture. Mooncake. Yeah. We need to explain what they are about and why they are so important. We have to remember that China has gone through a long period of time that we are an agricultural country, agricultural civilization. And um, uh, mid-autumn, meaning that all the major farm work come to an end and uh, all the farmers are gathering enough wealth to celebrate. So, um, and they had the time. Yeah, they have the time. And uh, uh, as an old Chinese saying goes, uh, 民以是为天, so people take 
food as heaven. So I think that uh, for this kind of important occasions, how can we miss uh, delicious food? So um, because it's coming to the second month of autumn, mm -hmm. and uh, that's the mid-autumn festival, and we have a full moon. So uh, obviously people rely on lunar calendar to really right. perform their agricultural duties. The moon cake, the shape of it, actually almost similar to the moon that you would see during the mid-autumn festival. Yes, full yes, moon. yes, of course. I think that's the whole purpose of reminding people that uh, you know we're coming to right. a very important occasion. This is not any other full moon day in the 12th month. This is the mid-autumn festival. And uh, so everybody who is who was traveling outside the hometown would be coming back. And as they look like look at the moon, as the moon become fuller and fuller, it's like a clock ticking. So for them to go back home. Mm. So I think by the time they arrive home, uh, they would expect some homemade mooncakes. I um, love the way you say that. It's like yeah. a, a clock, right? Yes, yes. So they see the moon, they try to figure out their schedule of going back home. Yeah, it's, it's actually uh, something they actually use as a way of telling the time mm. in, in the ancient times. And that is the shape of the mooncake, but yes. the filling of the mooncake is even more fascinating. Yes, uh, I think people from across the country, they use different kind of fillings. Mm. Um, people in Beijing, like us, maybe uh, we, we don't really have a lot of different uh, varieties of fillings. But uh, people in the south, because the variety of food available in, in, in the south, southern part of China, so they have much more um, choices. Mm. So in Jiangnan, in um, Suzhou, Hangzhou region, the Yangtze River Delta region, or in the Pearl River region, or in Chengdu, the Tianfu Zhiguo, so the most fertile piece of land in China. So I think people have come up with different kind of feelings. Yeah. Like yeah. what? Like, um, for example, they have uh, lotus uh, seeds. Uh, Sometimes they have uh, smoked uh, meat. And they have That's sausages. My favorite. <laughs> and that is my favorite, yeah. in fact. Mm -hmm. so, uh, what is yours? My, uh, actually, I like something less sweet, but uh, with a lot of nuts. I was chatting with a newly made friend who uh -huh. is a real expert on mooncakes. The reason that I got to know her was because uh, she was introduced to me uh -huh. uh, as a really uh, expert on making mooncakes. She is uh, retired as an artist, but um, uh, she is making mooncakes uh, on every moon festival. So all her friends uh, and relatives just tried their best to get a piece of mooncake she made. And she was um, very, very uh, strenuous in making the mooncakes. It was a lot of work. Lots it? of work. They have to prepare much in advance. Like two weeks in advance, wow. 15 days. So the last time she saw the crescent moon, she. Yeah start to get ready for that and prepare all the materials. And uh, some of the materials has to be pr processed so that they can use it during right. the moon make, mooncake making. Many would wonder, you know, what really mooncake is made of. Yeah. It's actually soft dough outside, yes. enclaving, uh, encaving some of the wonderful feelings, the feelings you mentioned, yes. you know, like uh, lotus seeds and red bean paste. There's also exotic ones, right? Yeah, like sometimes they also use pine seeds. Mm -hmm. uh, and
and also they use uh, walnuts, for example. Right. Different kinds of nuts. And that's exotic for you already? Um, you know, yeah. the most exotic one that I tasted is, uh, you know, the feeling of durian. Oh, really? And wow. prong. Wow. And crab. Wow. Well, it tastes quite special, shall I say. Yeah, it must be some very coastal uh, customs. Yes, customs, indeed. Yeah. And also the most traditional in the southern part of China is those uh, with uh, duck egg yolk. Yeah. Right? Not just the mouth-watering, but also it's aesthetically very pleasant because you have uh, uh, a cake, looks like a moon, but it, when you open it up, it, there's a yolk, mm. duck egg yolk which looks like a moon. It's almost double happiness. Delicious moon cakes. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of my team, thanks for being with us. Find the Beijing Hour at precisely 6 p.m. Beijing time. We meet you on podcast and on air every weekday. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world.